Hi, I'm Katie. Um, I serve right over there at the keys. Um, this morning's scripture reading is from John 5, 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool. In Aramaic, it is called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of individuals, or invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for this time that we can come and hear and learn from your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would bless Tommy as he preaches this morning and that he would speak your words. I pray that you would open the minds and hearts of those listening to today to hear the truth of your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. I want to tell you guys a little bit about myself that you may not know. Um, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, I was a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor of a church that um, we had started, and we were in the early stages of building a church. We started with just a few people, and in a short, short period of time, we, we had grown to a, a fairly significant-sized church. And uh, round about that time, late, late 90s, early 2000s, you've been to church, you, you might remember this, uh, this time period. Uh, there was some revivals that were going on around the country. There was different things where God was doing just incredible things. The Spirit of God was, was, was arriving and moving, and they were holding services. There were was, there was some in, in Florida, there were some in Canada, there were some all over the place. And being as we were part of a uh, church plant, and we were trying to grow our church, these are the kind of things that you're somewhat interested in, right? You're, you're interested in seeing what God is doing in other places. And so we would we'd spend a lot of time investigating. Sometimes we'd go down and we'd visit, and sometimes we would just read, and we would reach out to pastors, and we would talk to them. It was interesting because at that time, in, in, in the early 2000s, there was this, um, this element or this uh, manifestation uh, in a lot of the different um, uh, uh, revivals that were taking place that made me really uncomfortable. Um, there was uh, there was what was was known as holy laughter. Anyone ever heard holy laughter? 
Anyone of you ever laughed holily? And it was this kind of weird thing that was taking place. To me, it was uh, one of those things that was manifesting in the church that seemed very much outside of what I saw in Scripture, what I saw as being something that was right. It was, uh, at that time, it was probably the second most weird thing that I had encountered, uh, the first being holy barking, which um, seemed really weird, especially if you were there in the service and Christians were barking. Um, but the holy laughter thing was tough, and, and, and we would go and we would see, and it would feel weird, it would feel odd, and, and I just felt very deeply in my heart that no matter how much I wanted my church to grow, this is the type of thing that we as a church need to realize um, was wrong and something that should not take place and something that should not happen in our church. And, and so for us, there was this line that was very clearly drawn as it related to different things that were taking place, but that was a part of it. Around the same time, as I said, I was a youth pastor, and I took a team of people, a team of kids and leaders uh, on a mission trip to Monterey, Mexico. It was a trip that I made uh, a number of times and one that I really enjoyed doing because not only did we have the opportunity to minister to people who were, who were hurting and needy, but God just always seemed to meet us there and do incredible things when we were there amongst these kids. And every night after we would be ministering throughout the day, we'd go to the um, roof of our, um, of our base. It was in the center of the city, and, and there was a roof up there that we would go and, and we'd pull a guitar and we would have a time of worship, we'd have a time of, a time of prayer. Um, and one of these particular nights as we were up there worshiping, God just was moving in just incredible ways. And as we were worshiping, as we were praying, as I was standing there with my eyes closed, I heard behind me the most bizarre, the most guttural, the most um, uh, um, strong laughter uh, I had ever heard. Um, now, I worked with, I worked with youth group kids. I worked with teenagers, junior hires, and usually whenever there was laughter in the midst of something, um, it was time for you to um, punish the kid, right? And so I turned around to see who it was that was causing the stir. And as I turned around, my, my vision of God changed and how he can work and how he can move. Because as I turned around, I saw the young man that was, that was laughing. He had his eyes closed and his hands raised. And the young man was a man by the name of Jeff. Now, Jeff, I knew um, since he was a junior hire, we started our youth group, it was about seven kids. Uh, two of the kids um, were a brother and sister named Jeff and Renee. Jeff, at that time, was a junior hire. Um, and at this point, he was about 16 years of age. Jeff was a sharp kid. He was a good-looking kid. He was a popular kid. He was a skateboarding kid. And uh, Jeff and Renee, over the last four years, had been suffering... Um, essentially watching their mom slowly die. Their mom was diagnosed with cancer. And she basically just wasted away. I remember seeing her, her last, basically the last week she was alive, and she looked like a walking skeleton. Jeff and Renee had for all of their formative years, essentially, their junior high years and high school years, lived in the morning of the death of their mom. They watched her die. And I remember shedding tears regularly as I walked with them and I saw the weight that was on them. 
And as I turned around and I looked at Jeff, and I saw him enthralled in Jesus, eyes closed, hands raised, and from the very center of his being, laughter coming forth. I knew that the Holy Spirit was doing something, and I knew that just because I wasn't okay with it, it was still okay. See, because as I stood there, I thought, doesn't Psalms 30 say that he will turn our mourning into dancing? Doesn't Isaiah say that he will grant those who mourn, giving them a garland instead of ashes, an oil of gladness instead of mourning? Doesn't Jeremiah 31 say, I will turn their mourning into joy and I will comfort them and I will give them joy for sorrow? In that moment, I realized that I had no right I had no right to put borders on the borderlessness of God's moving and working and healing. Now, I share that story because as I prepped this week's message, I noticed that there is a centerpiece um, in this morning's text that many of us could read over uh, that I think is actually the key to understanding the rest of the passage. And I think really is the key to challenging us in our own understanding of who God is and what God does. As I said, we're in the middle of a series um, entitled The Word, which is a study in the book of John. And the benefit of studying the book of John is the way it reveals to us who Jesus Christ is and how we interact with Jesus Christ. And so as we read this, it's important for us to see where it is that we can be challenged in our own understanding of who Jesus Christ is and how Jesus Christ works. If you remember the passage that Katie just read, was the story of the second healing recorded in the book of John. It's a spectacular healing. It's this, it's this, it's this, this picture, this story that really kind of captures your imagination, right? Here's Jesus. He's going up to Jerusalem, and he comes to this pool, the pool of Bethesda. Pool of Bethesda. Um, Bethesda literally means the house of mercy. And at the pool of Bethesda, there is, there is a multitude of people who are suffering. They are paralyzed, they are lame, they are invalids, the Bible says. And Jesus, amongst that crowd, he, he looks and he sees a man who has been crippled for 38 years, it says. And he walks up to that man and he says, do you want to be healed? And the man says, well, sir, I... I, 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 can't, I can't get into the pool. You see, there was a legend that had risen out of the pool that, that when the water was stirred, the first person who would get into the water would be healed. And so this, this, this man who was, who was crippled says, I, I can't get in. I can't. And, and, and if I try, try to crawl in is essentially what he says. If I, if I try to crawl in, by, by the time I get there, somebody has beaten me to it. So I can't be healed. And Jesus looks at him and says, take up your bed and walk. And in that instant, he takes up his bed and he walks. It is, it is an incredible story. Um, it, it is an unbelievable um, 
expression of the power of God to heal, right? How many of you would love to have been there to see that? But honestly, maybe the more fascinating thing, the more fascinating element of this story is not what took place in that healing, but the exchange that takes place between the Pharisees, between the Jews, and the man who was healed. Because this is what that happens. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered him, said, the man, the, the man who healed me, he said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said that to you? Take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Anybody notice something bizarre about this exchange? I mean, every one of us would agree that this is a spectacular occurrence, right? Jesus walks into a crowd of people who are crippled. He walks up to a crippled man who's been crippled for 38 years and says, do you want to be healed? The guy says, yes. And the man, Jesus says, all right, take up your bed and walk. He picks up his, he picks up his bed after 38 years and walks away. The Pharisees are fixated on the fact that he picked up his bed on the Sabbath. Mind-blowing, right? Jesus healed a man who had been crippled for 38 years, and you're not going, you're walking! You're walking! You're going, you picked up your bed and walked on the Sabbath day. You have got to be kidding me. Why did you do that? Well, look, the guy told me. Who told you to? Oh, you think that's an excuse? <laughs> this is the exchange that's been taking place here. Jesus Christ heals someone. Jesus Christ changes a man's life. Jesus Christ restores someone, and the fixation that they have is on the fact that they did it in this way that to them seemed completely wrong. They're fixated on the fact that you broke the Sabbath laws. Now we can look at this and we can think, what idiots? Like, like what unbelievable hardheads? How can you be so unbelievably spiritually obtuse to focus on that and not what Jesus did? How can you focus on how this was done and lose sight of what was done in that moment? It's easy for us to point back 2,000 years and ask that question of them. But now stop for a moment. Is it really that unusual? Is it really that unusual that we in the church get fixated on how things are done as opposed to what Jesus Christ has done? Have you not seen this before in, church, in your church experience? Do you not sometimes do that? 
Now everybody goes, well, no, not me. If I ever have issues with what's taking place, it's because I'm only concerned about, about the Bible and making sure that nothing violates the teaching of God's word. It's the same thing for me when, when I was a youth pastor. It was like, I don't see in the Bible anybody like wholly laughing. Don't you think that's exactly what the Pharisees were saying? Don't you think that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing? You realize that their position as it relates to the Sabbath isn't something they just pulled out of the air. It isn't something they just made up. They opened up the Bible, and the Bible said to keep the Sabbath day holy, and so they, they went and they said, okay, well, what does that mean? Right? I mean, we do this a lot. We go, the Bible says this. Well, what does that mean? How, how, does that, how do you live that out? Because it's easy to say, keep the Sabbath day holy, but what can you do on the Sabbath day? And so what they did is they sat down and they said, well, let's try and figure out what it is that God is saying to us about the Sabbath. Their idea that you can't take up a bed on the Sabbath day is them saying, we're just trying to stay true to the Word of God. The Word of God says to keep the Sabbath day. And so they kind of walked beyond that and expanded beyond that. We kind of do the same thing. Now, now understand something. Anyone who knows me, anyone who spent any time in this church knows that the Bible is central. That it is the center of it all. We are centered here at Mercy Hill Church on the Bible, first and foremost. It is, it is our foundation, it is our accountability, it is our anchor, it is everything. You're not going to see me say, well, you know, that was for then, that was for, you know, it doesn't really. If you want to bring correction in this church, you better make sure you bring the word with you. And if the word of God comes, I'm 100% open because I am accountable to the word of God. So understand, I'm not, I am not um, poo-pooing, I am not setting aside anything that the word of God says. But you can't use your opinion about the word of God to restrict what the spirit of God is wanting to do. That's the difference. I can give you an example of this. Several years ago, it's probably been four or five years ago now, um, in a Sunday morning service, we had a message in, in tongues come forth. Now, some of you may or may not be aware of, of the concept. It's, it's spoken of all throughout Scripture uh, in the New Testament. Uh, it's specifically uh, described in, in the book of Acts. It's taught on extensively in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. It first emerges essentially in Acts chapter 2, where the, the disciples are in the upper room and the Holy Spirit moves on them, tongues of firelight, and they go and they go in the streets and they begin to speak in other languages and other tongues that they had not been taught. We believe that there's several different manifestations, a couple different manifestations of that. One is, uh, one is for the, um, the corporate body where somebody comes and gives a message in tongues and it is, it, is, it is available to be and it is meant to be interpreted for the body to understand. I think there's also... Um, tongues that is a prayer language that is, that is used um, in the tongues of men and angels um, that God, the Holy Spirit gives us words and utterances and prayers that are beyond ourselves. 
But the particular gift I'm talking about that was manifesting in our church was a gift in the corporate setting where somebody got up and gave a message in tongues. That which is meant to be interpreted for the edification of the body of Christ. And on that particular morning, um, someone gave the message in tongues and then they gave the interpretation. This is one of those things where it appears to be, um, to be uh, difficult to reconcile. Where many people look at it and they say, well, this can be just phony, right? Some guy can get up and they can just go on and on and on and then they're interpreting their own thing and so then they just get up and they say, this is what God is saying through this. And so a lot of people get uncomfortable with that. And so around about that time, I got a call from somebody two days after and said, Pastor Tommy, I want you to know something. I, I'm all for the gifts, and I'm all for the gifts operating in the church, but what happened Sunday made me really uncomfortable. And I said, I said what? what are you talking about? And he goes, well, the person who got up and they spoke in tongues, and then, and then they interpreted their own tongues. That made me really, really uncomfortable. Because, you know, it could just be totally phony and it could be fake and people just trying to tension themselves. It made me really uncomfortable that they did that. And I said to them, you know what? It made me really uncomfortable too. I said, but when I read 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and Paul describes the gift, he says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a a tongue should pray that he may interpret. What does that say? One who speaks in tongues should pray that he may interpret. Right? Now, as I said to the man... I'm uncomfortable with it too. But my uncomfortableness with something has nothing to do with what God does. I have no right to restrict something that God doesn't restrict. And so each one of us, when we sit back and we say, well, I'm just saying this is what the Bible says, you better make sure it's what the Bible says. And for a lot of us, what we do is we say, well, I don't think that is, or I don't think that is, or that takes place in that way, and I'm not sure it's that. And what you've got to understand is there is a broad line, there's a broad, a, a, a broad avenue by which the Spirit of God is able to tread based on what the Word of God says. The Bible describes the gifts of the Spirit. One of the gifts of the Spirit is miracles. Anybody, anybody know what that encompasses? Miracles, miraculous things, <laughs> things beyond what happens every day. Miracles. So when you sit and you say, well, I don't think he does that, and I don't think he does this, and I don't think he does that, and I don't think he does this, you better make sure that the restrictions you're putting on this are restrictions that are godly and not humanly. Right? Everybody still with me? Most of you still not mad at me? Good. The means by which God heals, the means by which he ministers is not defined by our comfort level, our ideas, what we like and what we don't like. Too often we devise a methodology that we think, based on our ideas about God's word, rooted quite often in our perception of right theology, even well-intentioned, We create boundaries and barriers 
to God's moving. And, and understand something. We can get in the way of what God is doing. The Bible talks about do not quench the Spirit of God. That we have the ability to prevent God from doing things in our lives and in the lives of others because we step in with our own ideas instead of the ideas of God. And I still believe in the sovereignty of God, and he can run us over on occasion. And he's done it to me. But the Bible also does teach us that God is working in conjunction with his people. And when his people reject and resist, we can lose out. we got to make sure that we are not restricting God's methods. Because in so doing, too often we limit his ability to impact our lives and the lives of others. His opportunity to heal. We have to let God be God. And it's not our place to define his works. And again, understand, I'm not talking about ignoring or violating God's word. I'm talking about our opinion about God's word. And it can never be a reason that we oppose what God is doing. And this is important, and the reason why I take time on this is because I think this is important for us to understand the rest of the passage to get a good view of what Christ is doing here and what Christ is doing in the act of healing people. Not just in this place, but through all times. Because he's teaching us something through this miracle. I want you to see what he does when he encounters the sick. Because it's really informative to this idea of understanding how does God heal people. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay, lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now, I want, you, I want you to see something here. Quite often we read this story, and quite often we rightly uh, focus on the man who was just healed. And, and I think it's right to focus in on it because there's something informative about it. There's something amazing about it. We can, we can see the authority of God, the, 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 the authority of Jesus, the, the, the faith of Jesus, how he just steps up. There is, there is, no, there is no hesitation, is there? There, there is no step back. There, there, he just goes and he says, hey, take up your bed and walk. That's pretty, that's pretty something, isn't it? Like, like he's, not, he's not working anything up. He speaks with authority. He speaks to the situation, and the man is healed, and he goes forth. I believe Jesus Christ is an example for us as, as Christians to follow, that we, that we see his life, we see his ministry, and when he says, you will do even greater things than these, he meant it. That the Spirit of God was come so that we would be empowered, and when we see the, the, the gifts of the Spirit spoken about, it is things like healing, it is things like miracles. 
So I believe when we read this, we can learn something from the way in which Jesus Christ moved forward. So we see him, we see him speaking in power, we see him speaking in authority, and we see a response taking place. And I think that does help us understand. So focusing in on him healing that man, I think is good. But do you notice something else? Do you notice the number of people he didn't heal? It literally says there were a multitude of paralyzed, of lame, of invalid. A multitude. And the five colonnades hanging out, waiting to be healed. And it's recorded by John that he walks to one man who had been an invalid for 38 years, prayed for him, he got up, and he walked. Last week, one of my points in my message was, God heals some and does not heal others. Do you remember I told you the story of the two people in my life, my brother-in-law, who was healed in a miraculous way of a disease that was killing him? And of my mom, who God didn't heal, who died of a disease that killed her. It's true here, isn't it? God heals some, and he doesn't heal others. This is a reality that we have to embrace and we have to accept, and we have to, under, and we have to um, uh, believe in the sovereignty and the majesty and the mercy of God. Understanding that he's at work in ways that we don't quite understand always. One of the great lessons we have to learn is that idea that God sovereignly heals and he sovereignly doesn't heal sometimes. And it doesn't change the fact that he is still sovereignly God. Whether you like that idea or not doesn't matter. It's what we see expressed in the word of God. One of the other thoughts I mentioned last week was that people who think they know why he heals and doesn't heal are wrong. God heals who he chooses and doesn't heal who he chooses in accordance with his will in concert with our prayers. One of the, one of the things that, that people say is, well, the reason you weren't healed was because you just didn't have enough faith that Jesus would heal you. This is people trying to explain that, 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 that issue, that, that he heals some, he doesn't heal others. He goes, why didn't they heal him? Well, you just didn't have enough faith to be healed. Is that what the story tells us? I mean, I mean, I mean was the man who was healed, did, did he appear to have any more faith than anybody else who was around the pool? Right? When Jesus saw him lying there, knew he'd already been there for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am going, another one steps up before me. Does he appear to be able to be saying, but I know you, Jesus, that you will heal me right now. No. He has faith, and he has faith in a pool. And, the thing that, and an interesting sidelight to that idea is, is the the... The pool of Bethesda, although it talks about the mercy of God, 
it was the, the, the house of mercy, and so people applied a lot of times the mercy of God. The reality is, many scholars believe that this idea that there was this healing pool, that if you're the first one to get in, is actually an adaptation of pagan belief. See, there was, there was, there was, there was the, the Greek god of medicine, and, and not far from here, there was another pool. And it was the pool of Asclepius, who was the Greek god of, of medicine. And so what it appears is, these Jews had, had adapted or adopted a pagan idea about healing. So not only does it not appear this guy had faith that Jesus would heal him, he apparently had faith in, in, in a false god or a, or a false, false methodology of healing, as did all the others. And so people say, well, well, Jesus, yeah, the man didn't have enough faith, but Jesus had enough faith to heal him. He's the one who had enough faith to heal him. So somebody has to have enough faith. And then I say, yeah, that's true. Somebody does need to have enough faith. Yes, it was Jesus' faith that healed him. But here's, here's the truth about it. It does, it, it does take faith. But faith isn't this, this magic wellspring that has to do with some, some perfect combination of lack of doubt and total belief. The faith that is required is not real difficult. It is really about simply acting on your belief, your unseen belief. That's faith. You understand? When I go and I say, you know what, we're going to pray that God heals you, you understand that act of putting my hands on somebody and praying for them is in itself an act of faith. It is true. There is faith needed. But it's not a lot of faith. Remember the analogy Jesus used? Faith of a mustard seed. It really just comes down on acting on the belief that God is a God who heals. That Jesus is still healing. An act not in accordance with with our comfort level, but an act in accordance with our belief that God is the God that heals and Jesus is still healing. Here's the truth is, if you need a touch from God, you have to step outside of your comfort zone and ask for healing and ask to be prayed for. And maybe you need to ask over and over and over and over and over and over again, continuing to believe that God is a God who heals and Jesus Christ is still healing. Right now in our house, right now, we're we're living in the midst of that miracle, that reality. My wife, for years now, has been suffering from, from eating issues. She can't eat this, and she can't eat that, and she can't eat this, and she can't eat that. And she finally just said, Lord, I need you to heal me. And so she began having people pray for her. Every time they got together, just going to pray for her. Every time they got together, just going to pray for her. Pray for her, 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 pray for her. And finally, about three weeks ago, she felt the Holy Spirit saying to her, it's time for you to act on your belief that I've healed you. 
And ever since then, she's eaten whatever she wants, whenever she wants, and she's totally fine. No headaches, no lack of sleep, no stomach issues. Because God is a God who heals, and Jesus Christ is still healing. Amen. You have to have enough faith to act on that belief. And you have to know faith to pray for people to be healed. We said it was Jesus' faith that healed him because Jesus acted on the belief that God is a healing God. And hear that again. Jesus acted on his belief that God is a healing God. And that leads us to another truth about healing that's revealed here. Look at Jesus' response to the Jews. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered him and said, My father is working until now, and I am working. Now what does that mean? This is an important, this is important to understand as it relates to healing. Jesus, believing God is a healing God, prayed for people to be healed. But his belief in God as a healing God went beyond this. Jesus is saying here, my father is working and I am working. Ultimately what this is, this is, is Jesus saying, I am, I am I, Jesus saying, I am working in concert with God. I am working in concert with the Heavenly Father. Jesus was saying, God was behind the Sabbath work. And, 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 and this is what really upset them, was that he was saying, this thing that you're criticizing me about was actually God doing it. And so you, if you have an issue with this, you have an issue with God. But then it was also him saying that he's equal with God. Remember, that's what they said. He's equal with God, so now they wanted to kill him. But there's something very important as it relates to our conversation about God's healing and what Jesus Christ was doing here. Did you wonder why Jesus prayed for this one guy and apparently not the multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed that were there with him? Ever wonder why everyone Jesus prayed for was healed? Now, remember what his declaration is here about this exact healing. And let's see if we can get a clue, a hint as to why this took place the way it does. In John 15, verse 19, just after what we read, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him that he, what he himself is doing. Or maybe we can get a hint from John chapter 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Or maybe there's a hint in John chapter 6. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Or maybe there's a hint in John chapter 8. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my, but speak just as the Father taught me. Are any of you seen a, seen a hint 
here as to why it is that Jesus prayed for that man and not the others? Why it is that every time Jesus prayed for someone to be healed, they were healed? Because he did what the Father told him to do. He was working in concert with the Father. As the Father spoke truth to him, as the Father directed him, as the Father sent him, he did what the Father told him to do. The key is that he spent time with the Father to learn his will. He followed his leading by faith, and God manifested himself. The truth is, when we spend time with God, and we seek his leading, and we act in faith on that leading, God shows up. Are you understanding? that This is the Christian life. And, and, and it, guys, this is the Christian life. And most of us don't live it. This is the Christian life, and most of us don't live it. Most of us aren't doing what Jesus did and withdraw from the crowd and spend time with the Father. Remember what he said in there? It says they couldn't find him because there was a crowd there. Jesus would, Jesus would withdraw. He'd spend time with the Father. The Father would speak to him. He'd understand his voice. He'd understand his leading. He'd understand his guiding. And when the Father told him to go and do something, he went and did it. And when he did, God showed up. Most of us don't withdraw and spend time to hear and learn the voice of the Father. And if we do feel like we heard the God say something to us, he asks us to do something completely outside of our comfort zone, and so we convince ourselves, that's not what I should do. And then we wonder why our Christian faith is boring. We wonder why our Christian faith feels dead. We wonder why our Christian faith is ineffective. Because we're bypassing all that is the Christian faith. Withdraw, learn about who Jesus, learn about who God is, what God is saying, be in fellowship with him, hear his voice, act on his voice, and see God show up. This is what Jesus showed us. If your Christian faith is dry, if your Christian faith is boring, if your Christian faith seems dead, if your Christian faith seems ineffective, I'm going to tell you the starting point is you're not spending enough time learning who the Father is, learning who Jesus is, and then listening for him and following what he tells you to do. He speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through his spirit. And we should be hearing and learning and then acting on what we're told to do. Why do some of us struggle to see God move powerfully and miraculously? Because we don't set him free from our limitations. We don't prioritize time with him to know and hear his voice, and we don't act in faith beyond our comfort zone. I said this on the last day of our 10 days of Terry. And that's that normal is no longer enough. The word that God has for us is that our normality is not what he's looking for anymore. He wants us to go beyond what we've done in the past. If there's one thing I want you to bring from this, it's that his ability and means to heal you and others is boundless. Even today.
He can heal your brokenness. There's so many who bear the scars of abuse from years and years and years that God heals and is healing. Hear his voice. Receive prayer. Be made whole. There's so many people who are gripped in fear and and as a result they're paralyzed to live a life. A life of victory. a A life that overcomes. And the God who heals is here today to set you free. There are people here who have suffered and continue to suffer with physical ailments. But God is a God who heals. Continues to heal. Hear his voice. Act in faith. Beyond your comfort zone see what God can do. God has been healing and setting people free. Do not miss out because you've set your own boundaries on his boundless means. Have faith to receive. Have faith to act. And see what he might do.